So, as, so we're continuing teaching through Romans. We're in Romans 9 today. Um, and uh, we're, we're kind of coming through this, this glorious section that Paul's been doing to just give this beautiful picture of salvation and our hope and assurance. And he's really just really called us to this comfort and assurance that comes from our salvation being by, by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And he's just masterfully just kind of kind of torn us down so that he could build us up in a right way and fill us full of hope. And he's just been reveling that. And it culminates with this, with this kind of this glorious picture of that beautiful assurance in Romans 8, uh, 31 through 39. And then we get to Romans 9 last week, what we looked at those first five verses. And, and it's that, that, that beautiful picture of our assurance is followed by um, this, this kind of this most gut-wrenching lament of brokenness over the fact of, 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 of that many of Paul's brothers and sisters of Israel were not saved. They were not redeemed. They were not a part of the promise. And and, you know, that he has seen that they have not tasted the joy and freedom of this promised hope of Jesus. Jesus being the very Messiah that they've been waiting for all this time. And he sees they've, they've missed out. So that's kind of where we come to, not kind of, that is how we get to where we are today at Romans 9.6. So you can go ahead and open your Bibles if you haven't already to Romans 9.6. Uh, we'll have it on the screens as well. If you use the Bible app, uh, you can go to more, click events. You'll see the bridge mantras pop up and the passages are there as well. Um, also, if you need a Bible, you just want a physical Bible, there's one under a chair near you. And if you don't have a Bible at all, please take that. That's our gift to you. So as you're kind of turning there, uh, as we come into Romans 9-6 today, today's passage, we, we'll see that Paul addresses, that he begins this, actually he began it last week, this, this address to the people of Israel. I mean, today is, is he, he's doing this, he's working, he's working to help them grasp how, how it could come to this state. How is it that some of the people of promise have not come to see Jesus as, as the Messiah? I mean, again, he walks us through it last week. They're God's chosen people. They were set apart specifically by God for his holy purpose. They've been given the covenants. They've been, they've been given the very presence of God as they had the temple. That's where the holiness of God dwelt. They were shown the way to worship him rightly. They were, and they were given the law of God, which was to show them how to live fully unto God as he had intended in creation and in them, in them uh giving a picture of that to the world. They were given the promises of the Messiah. So again, it's, it's, it's kind of bewildering. And if you're, in, again, put yourself in the seat of the Jewish person, it's bewildering to, for them to hear some of them are not redeemed. Some of them are not part of God's promise now. And so he's, he's addressing this. And it's kind of just this unbelief of how could any of these not believe, not recognize their long-awaited king. So like I said, today is part one of a two-part sermon. Um, we'll continue the next part uh, next week. Um, Paul addresses this question, this, this reality, this, this problem through, by, by posing three questions. Those three questions are, has God's word failed? Has his promise failed? Is God unjust? And, and why even try? Kind of if, if is God fair, so if he's not fair, why should I try? Kind of if he is fair, I mean, again, I'm, I'm, he's he's couching it in their terms. This is the questions he addresses. So today we're going to look at the first two questions, and then next week we'll look at the third question that Paul uh, addresses. But before we go any farther, let me pray for us. God, we love you. 
I love you, and I'm grateful, Lord, for your love for us. I'm grateful for a time to gather this morning. I pray that, that uh, just as we are, each one of us, God, whether it be uh, in belief or disbelief or skepticism or doubt or confusion or hurt or, or joy, wherever we are today, however we are today, I pray that right now we would be confronted by your truth, your goodness, and your grace and your mercy. Lord, to see, Lord, that you are a holy God and you are our loving Heavenly Father. And Lord, that you are for us, Lord, you are for restoring your creation. So Lord, let us now just um, kind of have humble hearts, open, open minds to hear your truth, Lord, um, and, and just give us your wisdom, the right understanding of who you are. Lord, speak through me now uh, or in spite of me or whatever it takes, Lord, for your truth to land and penetrate hearts. Lord, I pray that you would take the words that pass from my mouth and catch them afire in us. And Lord, that it wouldn't just cause us to nod our heads in here, but it would cause us to live a life that is marked by your love and your grace outside of this room. So Lord, I pray for each one of us. Lord, we, we need you, God, and we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your word. Uh, let us cling to it, God. Let us hunger, Lord, for understanding and knowing that your understanding is better than ours. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's look at the first question. Just real quick, the first part of, uh, of, of Romans 9, 6. Paul starts by saying this. He says, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. So that, that's kind of an, it's, it's an inverse to the question, has God's word, has his promise failed? And so as we said, the people of Israel, they were given the covenants. Genesis 12, we see that God told Abraham that he would be blessed and through his descendants, all the world would be blessed. And so we see that through, through Abraham and all of his descendants, God's blessing would be brought forth. So Paul, obviously, as we see here, he's not afraid of conflict. I mean, he enters right in. But I, do not, I, I want to make sure that we also see his, his pastoral gentleness in what we covered last week. Last week, he, he just took these, these, these moments just to communicate his, his brokenness and his heart and his love. Once again, what we looked at last week is just like his, his heart is bleeding for his brothers and sisters. He wants them to know this hope. He wants them to know peace. He wants them to know the belonging for which they've yearned for for, for, for their whole history. And, he's, and so, yes, he comes into this straightforward, but let's not miss this gentle heart of the pastor Paul here. So he's not afraid of conflict, conflict. He enters right in and he just, and you have to think about what he's addressing, right? I mean, again, for the people of Israel, they were the people of promise. It was belonging to Abraham that gave them their status, and he is turning that on its head. And he goes on and he says, For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. I mean, could, again, it's kind of hard for us to grasp. Can you imagine? If this was everything you were ever told, everything you ever knew, this was everything you ever clung to is, is your hope and your, your strength and your identity. And he's saying that, wait, but not all of you, not all of you who are, who are, are, are descending from Abraham, the people of Israel, are actually belonging to Israel. So he's saying we must define Israel properly. And in case you don't know kind of where we get them calling them the people of Israel, Abraham had a son named Isaac. We'll get to it in a minute. Isaac had a son named Jacob. Jacob was eventually, his name was Israel, and we see all coming from there. His name was changed to Israel. And so we see that that's why these people, are, these people descending from Abraham are called the people of Israel, but yet they're being told, wait a minute, I am descended directly from Abraham, 
but I, I'm not a people of Israel. So we need to def- rightly define um, the, who, who the people of Israel are. And we see that not all who are physical descendants are Israel. So let's see where he goes with this. Let's pick up and read 7 through 13, and we'll unpack it. So in 7, he says, And, and not all are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So if you don't know, Romans 9 through 11, it's a pretty difficult section of Scripture. Um, and, and, and sadly, oftentimes it gets skipped in, in teaching. And thankfully, We've said a course a long time ago that we don't skip the difficult parts because it is in those difficult parts we often find the best parts. And so th- there is a beauty in this. And so, again, if, if this is something you're familiar with and you wrestle with, because we're talking about election and predestination today and next week, um, I want to encourage you just to kind of stay your judgment for a little bit and let's bring our understandings to the Word of God and thus bring them to God Himself and see uh, what the promise is and what we're being exhorted to here. Um, so, so what's going on here? We see it says not all Israel is Israel. Not all that have racially descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are Israel. Again, this is turning everything on its head for his audience of the day. And we see that some are Israel that have not racially descended from Israel. Again, they are not part of the line, and this will unpack more as we go. So Paul proves this point by, by, by alluding to, by pointing to two Old Testament examples. So we're going to look at um, th- these promises carefully. So first he comes to, to the sons of Abraham, and he focuses on Isaac and Ishmael. He doesn't say Ishmael's name here, but that's who, he's t- that's who we're talking about. And as it said, God promised that blessing to the whole earth would come through descendants of Abraham. Uh, but Abraham had two sons, right? And so here in um, Genesis 21.12, Paul's quoting that. He says, through Isaac, your offspring will be named. And so we see that Abraham had two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. Ishmael was the son of Abraham and Sarah's maidservant. Uh, because what you, maybe you don't know is that Abraham and Sarah were old. They didn't think they could have a baby. When Abraham was 75 is when he first heard this promise that, hey, you're going to have kids, and through those kids, your whole, the whole world will be blessed, and time goes by, and they're getting impatient, and they kind of take matters into their own hands, and Sarah's like, well, hey, God promised us that through our offspring, we would be a blessing to the whole world, and so, hey, let's do our part. Here, you can have my maidservant, which was normal you can have, for the time. You can have my maidservant, not necessarily what God wanted, but it was a normal practice of the time, and you can have my maidservant here. Let's make sure that we have, let's make sure we have offspring for God's promise, and so then they have a baby. His name's Ishmael, 
And then they go on and God comes back and he gets more specific. He's like, no, through yours and Sarah's, this is what we're alluding to, through yours and Sarah's offspring will come the blessing. And that was when he was 99 and about a year later, she's pregnant and they're like, this is crazy. So that's kind of the story here. That's kind of what's happening. And so we see that it is not just through flesh, but it is through promise, through God's purpose that, um, that we see his blessing, his, his promise um, given. So Ishmael, again, was Abraham's physical descendant, but Isaac was the one um, that, that God gave the promise through. Um, so to think about this, well, actually, we'll, we'll hold the cards close to our chest. We'll get to that in a second because I want to I want to leave uh, some intrigue here. Let's look at the second example. And so we see Isaac and Ishmael. We see the second example of the twins of Jacob and Esau, right? And so Jacob and Esau, they were they were sons of Isaac and Rebekah. So Isaac, the same Isaac that, were, that was born to Sarah and Abraham. Jacob and Esau were born twins of them. They were both equal physical descendants. As you see, the Ishmael and Isaac were not equal. You, you could say, well, they're not equal because one was of the maidservant, one was of Sarah. So he's wanting to blow that out of the water that somehow it was some external circumstance that caused Isaac to be the blessed son. He says, no, wait, before, he says they're twins, so they're both equal. They have equal claim to being physical descendants. He says, and then before they had done anything good or bad, Jacob was chosen over Esau. What Paul is really digging into here is why it is that some of Abraham's descendants love God and some do not. And even broader, why why anyone loves God and some do not. So, so why do some love God and some not? Um, so like I said, Jacob was chosen before they were born, as we saw in verse 11. Um, so we see this. He was chosen before they were born by God. So he was chosen before they were born. Second, just in case you wanted to chalk, like I said, chalk this up to, to um, Isaac being his only son, from his wife, Sarah, uh, and, and Ishmael being from the maidservant. Uh, we, we can't do that. He makes it impossible because, again, Jacob and, um, I, Jacob and Esau were of the same claim. So, and some, some would like to attribute this to God's foreseeing, God's foreseeing of the choices they would make. And they say, well, God just looked down the corridors of time and he saw that, that Jacob would be the one that believed God's promises and walked in God's ways and Esau wouldn't. Or, or that Isaac would be the one that, 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 that held to God's commands and Ishmael didn't. But it can't be that. Did you see verse 11? It says, not by works, but him who calls. If it's just foreknowledge, then still our salvation is based on our merit somehow. If it's just that God looked down the quarters of time and saw that, okay, these guys, this guy would do right and this guy wouldn't. I'm going to give my blessing through this guy, my promise through this guy. He's going to love me and he's not. Then once again, we've removed the work of grace. We've said that it is now this merit that causes God's love and favor and turns their heart to them. And so it's not foreknowledge. We remove the beauty of grace if we say it's just God's 
infinite knowledge that is timeless. We're speaking to God's sovereign choice. And then third, we're given the sole basis for the difference. So again, we see uh, God that Jacob was chosen. We see that it's not just um, it's not just uh, foreknowledge, and it's not just that one had a stronger claim. They were of the same claim. The sole basis of the difference we see there is God's purpose of election, as it says in the text. And so, like just to unpack that real quickly, election is this Greek word eklogi, right? That matters. You guys want to know that. Um, but it's, it just translates to pull out or to choose. Like if you're going to shoot an arrow, it's, you've got to decide which arrow you're going to pull out for your purpose. It's just that picture, right? Or which, loaf of, which piece of bread from the loaf of bread you're going to choose. And just by the way, you don't have to choose the top piece. You can dig in there and you can get any piece you want. You really can. You should try it sometime. It's, it's invigorating. Um, but it's just that picture of like, it's just to pull out or to choose. And so we see that it is God's purpose of election. We see that it's his purpose. It is, it is literally saying it is God's intentional doing motivated by nothing but his own will. And so like that is just stark. It is clear. You can't get around it. It is that by God's own motivation and nothing else, God chose among others he chose Jacob over Esau, Isaac over Ishmael. Paul makes it abundantly clear by quoting Malachi 1, 2, and 3 when he says, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. And now, and, and if you're not familiar with kind of biblical language, just to clear it up real quick, I don't want us to be mistaken. This is, this is not using hated like the, the emotion that, that we kind of ordinarily associate it with. Um, it's, it's, an, it's a Hebrew idiom. And so what we see here is the same way that Jesus talked to his disciples saying, if you want to follow me, you need to hate your family. Now, if you look through all, all throughout Scripture, you see that is obviously the way we, that we would interpret that today. That is not what Jesus meant, and it's not what is being said here, because Jesus calls us to love our families, right? And so it's this, it's this point that he's making through contrast. And it's saying that, you choose, you, you give preference over the other. So Jesus was saying, hey, in following me, you are, I, as, I am, as I am here on God's mission, I am, following, I, I, am, I am following the Father, you are following me. And as you do that, your purpose becomes my purpose. And you're placing that over everything else in, in this life. And so it's just that same picture of preference. God is saying, and, and Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. It is this, it is this very real statement of just that, for his, his sovereign purpose, he gave preference to one over the other. And, you, you know, and I imagine they're starting to get some discomfort. You're like, this doesn't sound right. And so I, that's good. I want you to hang with me. It's pretty straightforward here, but it's just hard to accept. It's difficult. And, and, and that's okay if you're sitting here and this is like causing you to squirm a little bit. You don't like it. That's natural. So let, let me a quick, quickly address two common objections before we move on. So when we think about the motivation of God, if we say that God's purpose of election, it is, it is something that he intentionally did by his will, for his will, motivated by nothing else, where he chose some apart from others, does this mean that, that God is kind of arbitrary in his choosing? Does he just, is he, is he, does he just kind of at a whim, kind of duck, duck, goose, any, mini, money, mo, this one and not that one? 
And what we just, and again, there's more to unpack, but to quickly address this, and we can dig into it more later, the answer is no. Um, this is not saying that God has no reasons. It's just saying that the reasons are not in us. Does that make sense? It's not saying that God does not have reasons. He absolutely has his reason. It just doesn't lie. His reason doesn't lie in us and anything that we have done, earned, or not earned. There is no superiority between those who have been selected out by God and those who have not as far as what made God do that. Uh, the second thing I want to quickly address is why does the doctrine of election matter? And I've heard it said, and I was like, and I, I mean, like, just, it's like, isn't it just divisive? It's just divisive. It just causes problems. And it is difficult, and it does cause friction we, when, we wrestle to, when we wrestle together. And, and it's something that is often very uh, impassioned if you have spent any time in this, if, you're, if you find yourself on one side or the other. And let me just go ahead and say now, there is room. There is room for unity and grace and, and, and common fellowship in the Scriptures for us to, to say that some come to God for salvation by His predestination and some God to, and some, or, or the other kind of faithful claim is that some come to God by their own volition and recognition. The, 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 again, the Reformed or Calvinist versus Arminian or free will, if you're familiar with any of those terms. There is room for us to stand in unity and to say that, that we have a common love for God, a common love and reverence for the Word, and a common trust in Jesus and to, and to have space in here for different interpretation. But this is where we are. This is, uh, this is how we understand it. And, and so, again, if you sit here and you're like, man, I've studied this and I'm still not here, I want to say I appreciate your, uh, your sincerity, your intentionality, and let's continue to journey humbly together, bringing all of our understanding to the Word, empowered by the Holy Spirit, and letting Him shape us and transform us. So let that be said here. It is difficult, but without election... You compromise the beauty of the central teaching of God's Word, that our salvation is, once again, I'm, I'm going to say this a bunch today, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, not by our works. It's hard to say that we're not compromising that if we say that we, we can throw God's sovereign election aside. So if the only difference between the believer and the non-believer, the Christ follower and non-Christ follower, is, is somehow in them, that somehow they had greater understanding, greater humility, greater vulnerability, somehow that it was in some way that they were responsible for their coming to God, then they, we, are the authors of, of our salvation, of our God. And do you want that in your hands? Would you not want a sovereign, holy, good, loving God to be the one that authors our salvation? We don't choose God. We don't. Our sin, we are dead in sin. Ephesians 2. We are unable to, to muster up any turning and yearning for God without Him stirring us up and awakening us. So we see that's why we wrestle with it. That's why. And we can wrestle well. Let's wrestle humbly. Let's bring it to the Word. And so um, to answer this question, has God's promise to Israel failed? The answer is No. Um, to be a spiritual descendant has always required spiritual faith to inherit the promises. Earlier in this letter, Paul said Abraham was justified by faith. He believed God. So even Abraham, the first receiver of the covenant, the one that it all flowed from, 
His righteousness, his right standing before God, his justification, his salvation came from trusting God. It came from faith. There is always, it's always been required to be a spiritual faith to inherit the promises of God. Also, spiritual faith is not a function of God's choice. Not, it's, it's not a function of, of physically belonging to the lineage of Abraham. So as we're moving through this and seeing how God's promise fell, Spiritual faith is not a function of God's choice. Um, it is not physically belonging. It is a fun. There you go. I was like, man, this doesn't make sense. I wrote this. It is a function of God's choice, not physically, and it is not physically belonging to the lineage of Abraham. Um, and then lastly, in essence, the answer to the first question is the doctrine of election. Those who freely come to God are those whom God has freely chosen by his own will. So, Paul knows what's on everyone's mind, and he asks what they are thinking here as he continues, as he's done over and over again through Romans. And I will say, for all of us, just as it was for his audience, it is normal to ask, just like, what in the world? Like, what's happening? Like, what in the, how can it be fair just to choose some? How, how can it be fair that God would just select some out of his quiver or out of his bread bag, right? I mean, like, how can it be fair? And kind of the essence of that question, is God unjust? Is he unjust? So in this next section, Paul looks at the time of Exodus to explain how maybe God is not unjust. Let's read verses 14 through 18. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Emphatically, Paul says, by no means. Then for his example, he says, For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. So let's look at this passage Paul is refer- referencing in Exodus. It's Exodus 33, 18, and 19. I'll just have it up on the screen. You can look at it there. It says, Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, this is God, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. So what's happening here, Moses is basically saying to God, he's saying, show me, when he says, show me your glory, he's saying, show me who you are. Show me who you are. Show me what makes you, you. Show me that I can trust you. Show me how I can have confidence in what you're doing. God's response is communicating the very reality of who he is. What Paul is saying is that this is an aspect of the very core of the character of God. So how are we to take this? Because to say, I will have mercy on whomever I will, and I will harden whoever I want to, it kind of sounds impersonal. It kind of sounds like, don't question me. It sounds like, who are, you know, like, don't, it just sounds like there's just this, this arrogant removal of care. It sounds kind of power hungry, you know, just, it just, like, how are we to understand this? How can God do this with his mercy? 
so to think about this, I think it's all important to think about what mercy is, to understand what mercy is. Mercy is the, the undeserved intervention over peril, right? Like when I talk to my kids about grace and mercy, we talk about mercy, and mercy is when I don't give them a punishment they deserve. Grace is when I give them a reward they don't deserve. Punishment is when I withhold the punishment they do deserve. So we see this kind of for, to understand the fuller picture of it. It is just the removal, the unwarranted removal or protection from peril. So we have to understand mercy in that way. Mercy, by its very definition, is never owed. The one who shows mercy is never obliged. If it would be, that's, if it was, that's not mercy. It contradicts itself. So mercy cannot be unfair because of that. It can't be unfair because it's never owed. Mercy must be totally free for it to be mercy at all. So to call mercy unfair is self-contradictory. So Paul is saying God owes no one salvation, and if he owes no one salvation, then he is free to give it to all, some, or none. Because what causes our need for salvation? It is our sin. It is, our, it is the fact that we have sinned against God. And so mercy is when we step in and remove the destruction due to us in our sin. John Stott said this. He said, The basis on which God deals savingly with sinners is not justice, but mercy. Timothy Keller says, Salvation is about God's mercy and His gift, not our work and our right. Salvation is about God's mercy and His gift, not our work and our right. Maybe to illustrate this, something to help. Let's say um, there's a rich benefactor, and she decides to take, to take care of 20 students from an impoverished inner city school to take care of their, their entire college tuition. She selects them out, and she chooses 20 students. Why, why those 20? There are 20 more, 100 more, 1,000 more just like them that are equally deserving or undeserving. But she selects 20. Is she unfair for showing mercy only to those 20? No, she's not. She has no obligation to show mercy to anyone. It is her prerogative to share mercy as she wills. And she's not faulted. None of us have any claim to God's mercy. And that's because what we said a second ago, we are all sinners. We've all fallen short of his holy standard. We've all come up. None of us are righteous. No, not one. And the wages of sin is death. That's in, our, in, our, in who we are. That's our starting point. That's our entry point. I know it's kind of glib and gloom, but it's the truth. And it's important to understand. So when we understand this, the shock is not that God does not extend His mercy to everyone, but if we truly understand the magnificence of His grace and, and the, the, the majesty of His glory, the shock is that He would show mercy to anyone. So now we come to Pharaoh. And God says He shows mercy to who He will, and He hardens those who He hardens. So to show, he, he comes to Pharaoh to show that 
just as God chooses to have mercy, uh, He also chooses to harden. That's in verse 18. So we're going to cover this quickly because we already looked at this back when we went through Romans eight. I mean Romans one, uh, specifically verse twenty-four, the section around there. So if you want to go deeper into this, uh, you can go uh, back to that sermon, or we can just go get a coffee. Um, uh, but that's on, online or through podcast. Um, but so he so we we've already unpacked this some, but we see that God says, "I harden who I will." So this is a challenge. Uh, it is a challenge to kind of grasp, but but with some reflection, I think we can. We can hopefully understand. So again, Pharaoh, as an example, he helps us. Um, and as we've as we've read comfortingly uh, in Ephesians and other places, God sets up and deposes kings. Right, all are under His sovereign rule. Nothing happens outside of God's sovereignty. And so even here, as Pharaoh was set up to rule Egypt, God says, "I did that so that my work can be complete, so that my people could be delivered, so that my glory could be made known." And it says, not only was he set up, but, but Pharaoh's heart was hardened. So, what we're talking about here is the relationship between God's sovereignty and our responsibility. God's sovereignty and our responsibility. That's what's being unpacked here. So, as we look at what happened with Pharaoh, and this is, if you haven't ever spent any time in Exodus, uh, this specific section is Exodus chapter 4 through 14. And, um, and, and I would encourage you greatly just to spend some time uh, in the Old Testament, specifically uh, Exodus and Numbers. It is just a, an amazing picture of God sovereignly um, kind, of, kind of railing in His work in this world to, to uh, fulfill His covenant and promises uh, to His people. But we see this in Exodus 4-14, through this kind of exchange. We see that, uh, that Pharaoh, we see kind of over and over again, we see Pharaoh hardened his own heart as well as moments where God hardened his heart. In Exodus 9, God tells Pharaoh that he's being punished for setting himself against God's people. And by the way, if you're thinking that like Pharaoh was just, he was a good dude, and God came in and like did something to turn him, so, so that, that's not what's happening. Like get, Pharaoh, was, he was already showing his sinfulness. He was already showing his, his maliciousness, right? He was enslaving a people brutally to the point of even trying to wipe out entire people through infanticide. That was already happening. So, he, so we see, like, again, we see the, the starting point. And then God, so how does it work, God's hardening of Pharaoh? God's hardening of Pharaoh's heart was God giving him over to his own stubbornness, giving him over to his own will, giving him over to his own desires, giving him over to his own sinfulness. Pharaoh resisted God, and God gave him over to what he chose. God doesn't create the hardness. It is the natural state of the sinful heart. But he gives, he, he removes his, his confining grace. Martin Lloyd-Jones summarizes it this way. He says, The world fell into sin, but God put a limit, a restraint upon, a restraint upon it. And this world would be complete chaos in hell if he did not do so. But the moment he draws back his restraining influence, at any point, there is a hardening there. So that is one of the ways in which God produces hardening. He leaves them to themselves. So God's promises have not failed. 
He is unchanging. His promise is unchanging. He is just. He is fair. And I pray as we start down this road of of God's sovereign choice, God's sovereign work in our lives, that, that we will begin to see more vividly the beauty and the comfort of that. Again, like that we take joy that it's not in our hands. I mean, one of the greatest obstacles for people to come to freedom and faith is actually seeing that it is better that they are not in control. Again, let's go all the way back to the garden. Adam and Eve thought they knew better. They thought that they could take it into their own hands and they could say, no, this is what's good. This is what's right. This is what's going to suit me. This is what's going to actually bring me the understanding that I want. And they didn't trust God and they and they once again took it in their hands, so it's just not new. But if we could find the comfort in the fact that it is that God is the one who initiates in his love and in his mercy, and kind of just be patient and sit in it and rest and say, God, help me understand. Help me to see your goodness. So we're going to finish next week with this last question um, that Paul addresses here. But today I want us to walk away with two things. Romans 9.11 said, Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of Him who calls. We see that this is, there is no human or earthly association that will save you. It is a spiritual work There is no religious affiliation or tradition or time spent. There is no family name. There is no political affiliation. There is no organizational affiliation. There is nothing that you can belong to that can secure your place in part of God's promise. Only one association has the power of salvation. And that's Jesus. By grace, through faith, in Jesus are we redeemed? Are we justified? Are we made right before God? Are we made innocent? Are we restored to relationship? That's what it's all about. No matter what you feel that you belong to, that may give you some kind of status, Christ says, come to me and find rest in my family. And then lastly, Romans nine sixteen. so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So just as there is no association that will save you, there is no work that will save you. There is nothing that you can do in your power to somehow secure a spot. We can hear that two ways. We can hear it as you can't get there by works, or you can hear it as you don't have to get there by works. What a promise. What a gift. What a comfort. As a Christ follower, when you hear this, I pray that it reminds us to rest in this as well. To rest in the fact that it is in Christ, that we do not enter back into a works-based salvation, that we do not enter into some way of having to make sure that we perform well enough to stay in God's favor, but to rest in the completed work of Christ once and for all. And also, as you walk alongside those in this world who are seeking, who are hurting, who have doubts, who have questions, 
who are looking for belonging, who are looking for meaning, looking for hope, looking for peace, looking for salvation, don't require works of them that God did not require. Invite them into grace. Just as our our mission statement says, we commit to a journey of transformation together toward Jesus for the glory of God. It is as I pursue Jesus and invite someone in and come alongside someone, and as, as we journey through life together, prayerfully, as I am pursuing Jesus, they will encounter his love and grace. And we'll let Jesus do what he does. We'll let his truth, his, his grace, his power do what he does. We don't have to do it. We do not need to put some shackle on someone that God did not require. If you're not a Christ follower, if you don't know Jesus today, um, I, I will say, again, you can't get there on your own, and you don't have to. God's love and his grace is offered to you in Christ. If God is stirring, if he's, if he's, if he's somehow pricking your heart or your mind, respond. And if that is today, that is a surrender unto belief and salvation, then, then I encourage you to do that. If that's today, is just starting a conversation. We want to patiently walk through that with you. We would love to. Um, but respond today. The promise is that the work is finished in Christ. We believe, just as Abraham was, was made righteous, he was justified by faith. He believed God. We believe God. He is who he says he is. He's done what he said he's done in Christ. God's mercy is a gift to you. None of us have earned it. That's why it's mercy. I want to pray and we'll continue into a time of communion. Um, God, humble our hearts, but also embolden our lives. Lord, I pray as we um, just continue in this time, Lord, that we would be um, in awe of your love and grace. God, I know that there are difficult things in these truths for us to grasp and to grapple with and to reconcile, and I pray that you would just give us patience and perseverance to continue well uh, pursuing you. I pray that you would help us to have the starting point that you are good, or that you are love, or that all you do is true, and or that uh, when the day comes when judgment is clear, when the day comes that we see your full judgment as it is, that we know that we will be satisfied. Or when we see that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord, that's not just, that's not just a, a work of being in, in, in the most majestic holiness and, and in your presence, it is also of being satisfied. And um, so Lord, I just pray that you would give us a posture of faith and trust, that, that, that we would be honest before you and others, bring all of our understanding to you, through your word, and Lord, through your Holy Spirit, God, we pray for understanding. We pray for salvation. If there's anyone in here, Lord, that is, um, is seeking or that is, uh, that is not there yet, we pray that you would uh, bring courage, bring understanding, and, and bring uh, just the, the readiness to respond. So Lord, we just give you this time. Lord, let us uh, rest in the work that is complete being in all that your mercy is a gift and being comforted that it's not by our works, but yours. So let's continue to respond now as we come to the table. In Jesus' name, amen.